Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcasts 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Amanda Balby, with Consultant 360 Specialty Network. The American Thoracic Society has just released new guidelines on home oxygen therapy for patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, and interstitial lung diseases, or ILD. Today, I'll be speaking with the chair of the Guideline Writing Committee, Susan Jacobs, who is a research nurse manager in the Department of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine and is a nurse coordinator in the Interstitial Lung Disease Clinic at Stanford University in California. Thank you for joining me today, Susan. To start, can you give us an overview of the new guidelines? Yes, I I think it's important to start with some background. Uh, as to how they came about. There were two publications that came out of ATS in early 2018. One was uh, out of the nursing assembly that surveyed about 2,000 oxygen users in the United States and found a description of multiple barriers that patients experienced using oxygen. And the second publication, which grew out of that, was a full-day oxygen workshop report that really went on to document uh, the multiple gaps in evidence that support the rationale for why we prescribed oxygen. Uh, It also identified multiple gaps in education and training for patients. Uh, And this is a multidisciplinary group that included all stakeholders. So it really was a broad review of assessing how to optimize care for those patients that use home oxygen. So really, it became clear that there was a need for a review of the evidence. Um, Oxygen is a very common therapy for patients, and it crosses multiple cardiac pulmonary diseases. Um, But it's a quite a burdensome and equipment-laden therapy. So if we're going to prescribe it, uh, it became very clear that we needed evidence review so that we can tell our patients and have clinicians understand what to expect in terms of improving either symptoms, uh, the quality or quantity of our patients' lives. So this was really kind of the the rationale and the underpinning for the development of these guidelines. So we did go on to convene a panel of very diverse, uh, including international and and many experts, including physicians, nurses, uh, respiratory therapists, physiotherapist, a patient, oxygen users, uh, very important input, and of course, a medical librarian and methodologist. And and our panel also included members that had expertise, um, some with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease patients and others with interstitial lung disease. Some were experts in pulmonary rehab, hospice, uh, we had respiratory therapists, new, you know, really equipment experts. And, and, and many had experience doing guidelines, um, and others, like myself, did not. And I had three expert co-chairs, Jerry uh, Krishnan, Ann Holland, and Dave Letter, that each had uh, great experience to help guide the group. So our panel uh, focused on patients with COPD and ILD, which are really the most common group of patients that are prescribed oxygen. And we selected six questions. Uh, using a Delphi process, and basically evaluated and summarized the quality of evidence uh, using the GRADE methodology, and from that created recommendations. 
And for each of these questions, we did pre-select what we considered for that question, kind of what was our critical outcome? What was it that we were looking for uh, for that question, such as mortality, or was it health-related quality of life or physical activity? So of our six questions, and I would say that there were many questions we wanted to ask, um, but because of the depth and the breadth of, of the systematic review, we did focus on six questions. We had two questions that asked if oxygen should be prescribed in patients with COPD and ILD who had severe resting hypoxemia. And that we defined as a saturation uh, equal to less than 88%. So for this group, we really found the highest quality of data uh, supported oxygen to decrease mortality, which is our critical outcome, in patients who had COPD with severe uh, chronic resting hypoxemia. And so we had a strong recommendation for that uh, with moderate quality evidence. And that was really based on the two studies that came out in the early 1980s um, that looked at the use of long-term oxygen uh, in patients with COPD with severe hypoxemia. When we looked at our patients with interstitial lung disease, it was more challenging. Uh, mortality was also our critical outcome. But for the evidence, looking at patients with ILD that had severe chronic resting hypoxemia, uh, we did not find studies that met our inclusion criteria. So we really had to use the indirect evidence from the other trials that documented a benefit in mortality for COPD and applied that to our ILD population. Again, we made a, a strong recommendation, but with very low quality evidence. So we also asked the question, should oxygen be prescribed for patients with COPD who have moderate chronic resting hypoxemia? which we defined as a saturation between 89 and 93%. For this question, we did not have evidence that supported an improvement in our critical outcome of mortality. So for this, we made a conditional recommendation against prescribing oxygen to those patients with uh, COPD and moderate resting hypoxemia. And this was based on low quality evidence, really just one trial, the LOT trial. Then we went on to an area with our next two questions, which really looked at patients that had severe exertional hypoxemia. This is something that in clinical practice, we come across very frequently. We have patients who may be okay at rest, but who desaturate when they move around. We also know that patients are different across different disease states. So there's some data on ILD patients. They have a very rapid steep saturation curve compared to uh, comparable COPD patients. So we thought this was an important area of research to review. Um, so it was very interesting on our panel because we had international colleagues. We learned that clinical practice varies dramatically. Uh, some don't offer ambulatory oxygen at all, and others offer it only after a blinded trial that the patient must document improvement in either dyspnea or exercise capacity uh, using a blinded trial of air versus oxygen. This is important. Uh, we know that exertional hypoxemia is a marker of, of worse outcomes in both populations. Uh, but when we reviewed the data and the evidence for our critical outcome, which was health-related quality of life, 
related to mobility and physical activity. We found that the evidence and the, the studies were difficult to compare because of a variety of eligibility criteria. Some did exercise testing in a more of a lab setting, like a six-minute walk, as opposed to daily life. Um, some included blinding, and some did not, of the intervention group. And multiple uh, different instruments were used to measure health-related quality of life. We did find the results favored an improvement in our outcome of health-related quality of life and exercise capacity and breathlessness in specific settings. So based on the quality of evidence, we made a conditional recommendation for the use of oxygen for severe exertional hypoxemia with moderate quality evidence for COPD and also a conditional recommendation but with lower quality evidence in patients with interstitial lung disease or ILD. So this is clearly, as I would emphasize, an area that we need more research um, because this in a clinical setting is a challenge for patients and for clinicians uh, as well, trying to prescribe adequate and maneuverable and easily handled equipment for our patients who are, who are mobile. And actually, that brings us to our last question. Our sixth question, uh, the entire panel unanimously agreed that there was a significant unmet need for access to high-flow, lightweight oxygen uh, portable devices. And there is a population uh, of patients that have very high oxygen needs. We defined high flow as above three liters, continuous flow. And these are patients that need high flow and that are also very active and mobile outside of their home. And the question we asked was, should patients who have chronic lung disease that are mobile outside the home and require high oxygen flow rates during exertion, should they be prescribed liquid oxygen? As you know, there are different modes of oxygen. There's compressed gas, there's liquid, and there's concentrators. So for portability, the only option that can provide continuous high flow above three liters is a liquid canister. So based on our review, uh, we really did not find any studies that did any type of comparative uh, investigation comparing liquid portable devices with others. So there was minimal evidence, but uh, in view of what we were able to see in some data, there were some health-related quality of life benefits and improved mobility. But again, there were no studies that directly compared liquid oxygen to other devices. But based on the evidence, we did make a conditional recommendation uh, to prescribe liquid oxygen for that subset of patients based on very low quality evidence. So that's kind of an overview of our, our six questions. Great. So these are the first oxygen guidelines specifically for adults to be developed in the United States. Can you tell us more about that? Well, this is the first oxygen guidelines to be developed in the United States nationally. So we don't have a previous uh, version. So this is the initial first oxygen clinical practice guidelines coming out of the American Thoracic Society. Now there are other guidelines that have been developed in the past. You know, some uh, disease specific guidelines like the idiopathic 
pulmonary fibrosis guidelines or COPD gold statements, they've touched on some recommendations of oxygen use in that population. And then there were other societies, such as the British Thoracic Society uh, and the Australia-UK uh, guidelines that were published uh, previously, I think 2015 and 2016. So they were also very, you know, complete guidelines. So ours is a bit more updated. It included the LOT study, for example. So ours is really an extensive, detailed, you know, peer-reviewed guideline that uh, really provided a new guidance for oxygen therapy in patients uh, with moderate hypoxemia. And it really updated the guidance on prescribing ambulatory oxygen for both COPD and ILD patients. And I think what may also make ours different is that we did include a best practice statement recommending education and support, um, which can be critical for you know, adherence to therapy and treatment outcomes. This is a very diverse and expert panel to be emphasized that we took this task very seriously. In addition to just combing through the evidence for our six questions, we unanimously agree that there was a minimal standard of care that is not always being met, that can be met. And I think this guideline will provide that blueprint for clinicians for what that is. And there are resources to help clinicians and patients get that education uh, and training. So we, we would consider that best practice statement equal with our, our six you know, guideline questions. Can you talk a little bit more about what the research has shown recently about home oxygen therapy? There may be research I'm not aware of, but we haven't had a lot of publications about the use of home oxygen specifically. However, there is research that is ongoing, and I would say that the area that we're seeing a great interest is in technology and research on developing improved devices, uh, portable oxygen concentrators, for example. There's research looking at improving the trigger mechanism. These are on a pulse mechanism, which doesn't always trigger, especially in our interstitial lung disease patients that have a very rapid, shallow breathing pattern. So there is technology research on portable concentrators, uh, non-invasive ventilation, uh, portable devices to improve oxygenation and, and uh, mobility. Uh, there's some feedback uh, auto titration devices where instead of the patient having to, you know, take a tank out of a backpack or walk up their stairs to change flow rates, they could have either a remote control or they could have a device that is continually reading their saturations and has a feedback to automatically improve, increase their flow rates to meet the changing demands. So there's, a, there's that area of research. Dr. Holland, Ann Holland, also has a study underway comparing the use of POCs, uh, improving physical activity. Um, and she's actually going to do a randomized trial to look at a POC versus um, a POC with air. So it'll be a blinded trial, and that's important. We need the data to document the benefit for patients that are mobile. There's an interest in cost analysis, of course. We really want uh, to drive policy to improve 
uh, the delivery and the reimbursement to our durable, durable medical equipment companies. There's a whole service area that's important to deliver uh, adequate devices to our patients. So that's another area of research. I guess you could combine it. It's like service quality and, and cost benefit. So there's different areas of research. It's extremely uh, needed, and we look forward to this uh, for our patients in particular. So it, it kind of evolves around home oxygen. We want oxygen to improve and not uh, be an obstacle to helping our patients be mobile and get outside the home. Absolutely. What are the overall clinical take-home messages that you'd like to leave our audience with today? Oh, that's challenging, but I would say uh, the first that I alluded to is the best practice statement. I would say that this guideline includes a best practice statement that the panel I felt critically addressed what we consider a minimal standard of care for every clinician uh, to provide safety information, education, and training uh, to their patients on oxygen, as well as ongoing monitoring. We included in our recommendations uh, uh, to retest patients on a regular basis, uh, including after a discharge from a hospital stay. We certainly would want to retest a patient uh, to find out if they could come off oxygen, just as importantly as if they need to increase their oxygen prescription. And that should be a standard of care for every patient uh, using home oxygen. And I think part of that education is because of some of our conditional recommendations. This is an area that needs what we would call shared decision-making. That would be a discussion between uh, the prescribing clinician and the patient uh, to discuss uh, jointly when to start and stop oxygen therapy based on um, our evidence that we have uh, for both resting and exertional um, oxygen. So a, a big uh, emphasis for a minimal standard of education for these patients and an interchange between the clinician and the patient. I think the second point uh, that we really struggle with that I would say uh, is a priority is that these guidelines identified a need to really have more research to look at uh, liquid oxygen as an option or another novel portable device. Uh, we need um, to improve the portable devices to last longer and be able to have a higher capacity of flow so that our patients can be out of the home. The last message is that the evidence gaps for patients with exertional hypoxemia and the use of oxygen in patients uh, in general with interstitial lung disease are really highlighted in this guideline. And we certainly hope that this spurs investigators to address these. Filling these research gaps will drive policy improvements and help our patients. Great. Thank you again for joining me today and talking about this new exciting guideline. You're very welcome. We hope that this publication really improves the care of our home oxygen patients and drives some great device research, uh, as well as gets that essential data to support our patients' oxygen prescriptions. We also want to thank the ATS for their support in this extremely important project.